Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello and welcome to GodPod 81. And uh, today we have three of us around the table. Uh, it's not the usual three. Mike Lloyd is not with us today. He will be back again on future God Pods. But uh, you have me, Graham Tomlin. Uh, we have Jane. Hello. And uh, we have also Lincoln Harvey. Hello. Lincoln is, um, as some of you may know, our tutor in Christian doctrine here at St. Melitus College. And he's just written a, a book which has come out quite recently, uh, published by SCM Press, called A Brief Theology of Sport. Did I get that title right? Got it right. Yeah, feel free to advise everyone to buy 10 copies. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good book. I've just um, read it through again, and it's really excellent. So if you're interested in um, theology, which presumably you are because you're listening to GodPod, but if you also have an interest in sport, then uh, it really is the best book I've read that tries to put those two things together. So uh, you can find it on Amazon, any good bookshops anywhere. You're making me blush. I, don't, I think <laughs> Yes, he's got a very too humble to do this. That's why I do it for you. <laughs> Thank you. So um, uh, that's something you might want to look at. Well, uh, today we have uh, lots of really interesting questions. Thank you for every to everybody who's uh, emailed in questions to us. We're going to start off with a um, question from the uh, wonderfully named uh, Roger Luther. I rather like that name. I don't know if you have a brother called Martin or a father called Martin or something like that, or whether Martin himself had a brother called Roger. I doubt it somehow. No, it's not a very... Not a very 16th century German no. name, is it, Roger? Are you sure he's not French? <laughs> Roger, Luther, exactly. Anyway, Roger, thank you for your, your question. And um, uh, Roger says um, that he's recently been leading a science and religion discussion group for his um, uh, within his local church. Uh, with the help of the Faraday Institute Test of Faith Materials. And last week they got on to thinking about what is, uh, what does it mean to be human? And two questions emerged, one of which um, uh, we want to look at in a little bit of detail, which is this question here. In Genesis, it says that humanity is created in the image of God. What is your understanding of this? Does it mean that every attribute I have that monkeys, etc. don't, i.e. morality, rationality, language, art, tool-making, ability, does that represent the imprint of God in me, or could the image just be my ability to relate to God? So when the book of Genesis talks about the image of God, human beings being made in the image of God, what, what does it mean? How do we understand that idea of the image of God? Who wants to kick off? Jane? It's one of those um, things over which uh, huge numbers of words have been poured. So patristic commentators um, had all kinds of ideas about um, what it meant to be in the image of God, and they separated out image and likeness, the two different mm. um, English words, and um, and attached different ranges of meanings to both of those. Um, so the question you're asking uh, is one that could take several hours, if not centuries, um, to come to grips with. But I think one of the things I'd like to lay down to begin with is that I don't think the image is anything imprinted in us. I don't think it becomes a human possession when given... Um, by God to us. Uh, I think it's more about what we are. I think it's about our vocation, our human vocation, what it is that we're asked to do um, on behalf of God in relation to the world. Is that a good place to start, Lincoln? Good place to start, certainly, yeah. One of the 
I mean, there's all sorts of ways of distinguishing within the tradition between humans and the rest of creation. Often a popular one is our rationality, although that's increasingly disparaged. One of the other ways of imagining it is the image is a bit like one of those statues that you see sometimes in countries where the remote ruler who isn't fully present has a statue in the centre of the town. Mm. And something about the human being placed in the garden um, as an ambassador, so to speak, of God. But I think the, the final bit of the question about our relationship to God is vital because one of the things we learn if we travel forward from Genesis and read our New Testament is that the image of God is, is relocated. Quite clearly, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Mm. And that if we learn what image God is from Jesus, then the language of prayer and conversation and those who are invited to participate in God's life and to speak prayerfully through our worship must be at the heart of a Christian understanding because what Jesus reveals is in the depths of the divine plan originated in the beginning was this desire to invite a conversation partner into the life of God. And it seems, for better for worse, and it often looks like for worse, mm. us humans have that noble vocation mm. to be conversation partners who speak on behalf of the creatures, giving thanks and praise to the God and Father of Jesus Christ. There is that, um, that's right, it's, I think I, I kind of warmed to your idea, Jane, of um, the image not being anything we we possess, and, and it's not a particular quality that we have that, that other animals don't, because I, I suppose it's one of the things of modern kind of evolutionary theory and biological analysis that suggests that we have a lot more in common with the animals than sometimes we we perhaps thought in in the past and um and we sometimes christians have sometimes struggled with that you know we we may not be the only ones i mean our our gift of language may be more developed than other animals but other animals seem to be able to communicate in in rudimentary uh, ways Um, our powers of rationality and so on may also be better developed than others but other animals are able to perform certain aspects of of um, thinking and, and and so on, um, and so it's a matter of degree rather than of than of absolute difference, and um, which I think does drive you more back to this idea of it's about it's about our particular calling that somehow out of all the different species of animal life on our on our planet, God is you say Lincoln for some strange reason best known to himself um, picked out one particular species to 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 be the one to bear his image to be the conversation partner to to um to represent him um and i suppose it's i mean just going back to your distinction that you draw attention to joe between the image and the likeness and that's one that as you say you know people have have pondered over is that the same thing is it is it is it different things i think it's um i mean jürgen moltmann in his book on um on creation suggests that you know the image is the idea that we represent god within creation that humanity is as you say like the statue in the in in the the market square or the um the the statue even in the middle of the temple that represents the god um and the likeness is the fact that we reflect something of god's nature to the rest of creation so we represent god within creation uh, but we also um 
uh, are in some ways made in his his likeness and it's that that bit that's that's a bit harder to to grapple with isn't it and what that so does that distinction hold mm. um what do we think of that likeness part i mean one of the really interesting things that um uh that old testament scholars bring out is is of course that to what's very strange about um what god does is he gives this power to all human beings mm. um, and the words used I mean, ambassadors or statues or, or, or images of kings um, uh, those functions were often only held by um, rulers for example mm. who represented God in various kinds of ways mm. so it's, it's, um, it's I always find it a really mind-blowing thing that actually Genesis is saying all human beings are representatives mm. Um, of the divine power. I mean, it does, that doesn't in any way answer your question mm. about the likeness. Mm. I just wanted to get that bit mm. in. Um, but but I think it's um, very typical of human beings that what we try to do is we try to turn it into something that we then possess and operate. Mm. So we know what it means and we know whether or not we've got it and we know how it works. Instead of seeing that it is this gift, this outpouring gift of the creative mm. God who doesn't need to share anything with us doesn't need to make us even, and yet chooses that all human beings shall um, have some mm. kind of relationship with him, the creator, and with the world that he's made that is, mm. that is vital to its good functioning. Mm. Well, the, the, the other thought on it is that perhaps the image of God is not so much a, a possession but a process in the sense that the image of God is is being remade in us according to the image of Jesus Christ. And mm. as we grow into his image, then the image is more and more realized in us. So again, it's not this idea that this is this something that we, we all have and it's just there and it's a static kind of event, as it were. But actually the, the image is something which, as obviously there's another angle on this, that, that we have we have largely lost. It's been, been, been broken and is being restored in the image of Jesus Christ so that the more we resemble jesus christ the more we grow into his likeness the more the image the more we can say we we are in the image of god that certainly has a long pedigree right the way back to someone like irenaeus Mm. who to all intents and purposes argues that the first of the human creatures didn't fulfill our vocation Mm. and though we were made into the image of god there was this sort of um, turning away from the, the nobility of the calling and that it's only realised in Jesus Christ. Mm. And just as you might have a child who is born, made for language, but doesn't actually reach that stage, mm. that doesn't mean they weren't made for speech and language and that the image is actually something to do with the fullness of humanity, the end, mm. the goal, the, mm. the um, an eschatological reality. And to a certain extent, it's not natural but it's it's supernatural in as much as mm. we grow into it mm. by grace and vocation. Mm. And there's quite a lot of thinking done in over recent years around removing the notion of image from something innate in us and making it a relational category. Mm. So someone like Karl Barth makes much of the fact that it's male and female who are made mm. in the image of God, that something traditionally within an understanding of marriage when a man and a woman come together and retain their distinction and yet become one person, that somehow mm. echoes or images God's own life as unity and distinction amongst the three persons in relation. Mm. And in a similar way, a more Russian Orthodox 
understanding of imaging centers on the relationship between Jesus and Mary. There's something in their relationship of a son to his mother that images the divine life of the father and the son. So there's, there's lots of ways in which the understanding of image has been taken from something innate and made to be a vocation, a calling that's relational. And, and the, other, sorry, the other great strength of that, of course, is that if it isn't something innate, then we're not, or, or imprinted in some way, then it's, we're not constantly in danger of feeling that we've lost it. Hmm. Um, and there are, um, you know, it's supposing you do not attain speech, supposing you're profoundly autistic or severely disabled in, in various kinds of ways. Does that mean you're not in the image of God? Well, no, it doesn't. Hmm. If it's God's gift of relating and reaching out to people to draw them into relationship, then it isn't about hmm. human perf- categories of perfection. Hmm. It is about um, relating hmm. to God. And I think that's hmm. actually, I find that profoundly important. Hmm. And going back to Irenaeus's sort of idea that we somehow grow into um, the image of God, how do you fold evolution into that? Is the evolutionary process part of our growing into the image of of God? Do you understand that? I mean, it's a kind of idea that someone like Teilhard de Chardin kind of expressed quite a bit back in the 20th century. Um folding in evolution very much into a sort of theological, eschatological vision of the future. Um, does that make sense, or is that something you'd want to be a bit nervous about? You see me twitching. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you twitching. People yeah. listening to this can't. <laughs> well, I think there's obviously different ways to understand evolution. If we're simply, in doing that, relocating something that's innate in us and making it innate in a wider historical cosmic process that's somehow mechanistic then I think we would be uneasy. If, however, we recognise that however you understand, say, the language in Genesis of the days, whether you understand them mm. as literal 24 hours mm. or whole epochs or, mm. e- or however you understand mm. them, there's clearly a sense that God takes time, mm. that part of his generosity is his wisdom and patience and that mm. the human creature is placed somewhere in which we're given a task, a commission to tend and to keep and and to walk with God in amongst his creation. So I think you can understand, like Irenaeus, a certain um, vocation to grow, but if we follow some of Irenaeus, we have to recognise that we fell away from that vocation Mm. and Mm. it was recapitulated in in Jesus. Mm. So the second Adam, as Paul speaks. Mm. So as well as the first Adam was disobedient and, and banished out into the wilderness, the second Adam is obedient to his father and walks out, Mm. faces the temptations, Mm. but doesn't fall and remains faithful. Mm. And that reversal as he suffers for us and Mm. dies for us is a way in which God has Mm. recapitulated Mm. the first Adam towards the fullness of the stature that Adam never reached. Mm. And we, within the life of the church, as the Spirit Mm. unites us with Jesus in that great um, divine act of, of salvation are being recapitulated and growing into stature. So the goal of human history is not so much evolutionary process, but Jesus Christ. Yes, and that evolution isn't the only language we have to talk about mm. becoming. Yeah. It's not a choice between evolution and static states. Yeah. There's different ways to talk about mm. development and change yeah. that, are, that are more aligned to mm. Jesus. Very helpful. 
Good little cant around the, Im- the idea of the image of, of God. And um, so thank you, Roger, for your question. Just moving on to another one, which is kind of related in a way, because we've started to talk about um, about the person of Jesus Christ and Christology. And there's one here which is um, from uh, Paul Hurst. And I have no idea where Paul Hurst comes from. He doesn't tell us. But his question is this. It's quite simple. As Jesus was sinless, if he hadn't taken the curse of sin and death on the cross... Would he have died? So uh, does the sinlessness of Jesus um, mean that actually he would have somehow lived forever if sin is somehow, or death is the corollary of, uh, of, of, of sin uh, in us? Um, if he had not voluntarily chosen to take sin upon himself on the cross, uh, would he have lived forever? I guess that's the question. It's a good question. Um, Coming at it from a slight angle, one of the ways of understanding um, death is that by having a complete span, something could be known. So if I was to begin a sentence such as, um, Graham is um, the Dean of St. Melitus, and he, um, 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 or, or Jane is a great theologian, and she is... Um, um, if I don't finish my sentence, mm. the meaning's left incomplete, and you don't know what I'm talking about. And it's a bit like that with life. Because my future's open, I can't possibly be known fully. I could do something this afternoon that was so amazing that you'd have to say, oh, actually, we got Lincoln wrong. He, he was actually pretty good. <laughs> or vice versa, I could do something so terrible yeah. that you'd think, oh, um, we got him wrong, he's a wrong one. We shouldn't have ever trusted him. And so it's only at completion, or the tragedy is only at death, that someone can be fully known. And in many respects, I think if we understand the death of Jesus in, in those terms, in as much as if Jesus, and don't mishear me on this, it's easily misheard, if Jesus was still alive, and he is still alive, but if Jesus was just about to celebrate his 2,000th and 14th birthday and was living outside Jerusalem in a retirement home, we would have no idea whether he would wake up this morning and reveal a spiteful side or a jealous side or a, an angry side or a bitter side or, or an aspect of himself that he's managed to keep hidden. But we know the identity of Jesus because he died, his life's complete. And the one who was raised from the dead, we can trust him because it's Jesus. There isn't an openness to his identity in the same sense. And so I think the death of Christ needs to be understand, understood amongst all the things we need to say about sin and redemption as partly tied up with God's self-introduction, which has to be complete and is therefore an invitation to us that we can trust him. There's no hidden secret side to God. Mm. It is Jesus. Yeah. So then the, I suppose the next question is, um, would it have to have been that horrible, painful death upon the cross? Or is the cross what human sinfulness puts on Jesus? Yeah. Mm. Would it, I mean, another way of putting the question perhaps is that, you know, if Jesus had died quietly in his bed at the age of 92, um, surrounded by his loving family and friends, quite peaceful death, would that have atoned for the sin of the world? Well, I mean, one of the scandalous and diff- most difficult things to face about the cross is that we couldn't tolerate love himself walking amongst us. Mm. We wouldn't allow Jesus to die quietly in his bed 
at the age of 92 or still be alive now because we, in our sin, we judged him unacceptable. It was us who, who took him outside the city and hung him on a tree because we rejected love. And so the question about how he would have been depends on also on how we would have been. And, you know, mystery yeah. upon mysteries, yeah. we are... We have fallen and, and mm. corrupted, mm. and therefore we wouldn't accept Jesus. That's yeah. part of the point. Mm. And I uh, suppose there are two really interestingly different theologies of death now possible, aren't there? Um, I mean, there is the the, the theology of death, which um, uh, which human beings have created, where death um, is to be feared because it ends us. And we're the most important thing in the world. It is to be feared because it breaks relationships and they matter to us so much. Um, it is to be feared because it's, it comes upon us as, as judgment and punishment. And, and you could argue that that's a theology of death that Jesus actually transforms as he transforms everything. Um, in that because God has now in utter grace entered into, even into death, so that even in death we, can, we are now not separated from God. Um, that death becomes something different in the light of Jesus. It becomes um, a, a, a proper ending to to this phase of earthly life, um, and a, and a moving into a different phase of our relationship with God. Um, it assures us that we are not um, divided from from those that we love. It, it changes the theology of death. Yeah. Now, there is a there is a kind of distinction. I mean, in one sense, death is. Never a good thing, but there are differences between good deaths and bad deaths. There are deaths, untimely deaths, where you feel a life has been cut short. There, there are deaths that are painful and difficult. And then there are deaths that are, if you can use the word, sort of good, peaceful deaths. Someone I took a funeral recently from someone who died full of years in faith, surrounded by family. And yes, there was sadness. Yes, there was. There was a sense of separation. That there's something that something still of the enemy about about death. But yet it was a it was a good death in some ways, redeemed in a sense. And I often think of that line in the um, um, the Canticle of the Sun and the sort of Franciscan hymn that says, "Now, thou most kind and patient death that waits to hush our latest breath, mm. oh praise him, hallelujah. Even death is called to praise God." You use the, the A day. word during Lent, then. I <laughs> uh, did indeed. You let me off, but the um, uh, the, the other aspect I, I think about it is is this, this idea that the sinlessness of Jesus, and um, yes, in one sense we we say Jesus clearly is we understand it to be sinless, but there's also that that sense that and it says in in the Book of Romans how God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and that the flesh that he assumed was not some sort of other kind of flesh than, than ours, but it actually was sinful human flesh. Now, he, by the Spirit, was able to overcome the urges and tendencies towards sin that we give into all the time, which is what we mean by his sinlessness. But what we don't mean by his sinlessness is that somehow he was programmed not to sin very beginning, that it wasn't a struggle for him. Clearly it was, the temptation, temptations in the wilderness are a part of that. Now, if that's true, that he, he assumed sinful flesh, then then 
presumably what we mean when we say that Jesus was fully human as just as we are means that, you know, speaking hypothetically, if, if the cross hadn't happened, he still would have died full of years in the same way that, that we do as sinful flesh, as happens to sinful flesh. Now, as we know, that's not the story because he entered into the very depths of human experience, taking on, as you say, Lincoln, the, the, you know, the, the, the worst that we could throw at him, bearing the sin of the world uh, on the cross. Um, but I think in answer to the question, would he have died if he hadn't done that? Well, yes, but it would have been a very different kind of death. And and that does suggest that death um, has been reclaimed by God. That death can be a mm. natural mm. and not an evil thing, if you know it's not going yeah. to be the end of relationships, the end of the relationship yeah. with God and with others. It can be a transition rather than a terminus. So the last enemy, yeah, is death, mm. and Jesus has overcome that one as mm. all others. Mm. Yeah. Good. Well, I hope, um, uh, Paul, that has uh, helped answer some of your, your questions about that. And we come on to one last one for today, um, which is uh, in a bit of a different direction. And it, this one is really about the Bible. This is from uh, Derry Smith, um, who lives in Nashville, Tennessee, place of great music. But we haven't got any music today. But what we do have is a question. The question I'm sure is, you could sing us some, Graham. Graham Some has country his, music. in his past. Yeah. He has been known to strum a guitar. Mm. Yeah, my, my Dolly Parton moments. <laughs> <laughs> I won't inflict that on you now, though. <laughs> so um, I hope Dolly Parton's listening. It'd be quite nice, wouldn't it? Anyway, the question is, uh, it seems that just about anything can be proven using the Bible. Hitler used Bible verses to justify his actions. Some racists do the same. Bible verses are used to show that God approves of homosexuality and to show that he does not. All the arguments can seem quite compelling. I could go on with many examples, but at the core of my question is this. How do we know whether we are deceiving ourselves or being deceived or not? So how do we read the Bible? How do we know we can make any sense of it at all, given that it can be used in all kinds of different ways? Well, I mean, the good place to start is we are deceiving ourselves and being deceived. That's simply hmm. what we are. Um, that is the nature of the kind of people that we are, the kind of creatures that we are, is that we um, are deceived and deceiving. Um, so, um, And one of the ways in which we are deceived and deceiving is that we try to use the Bible. So we're constantly mm. trying to f- force the Bible into our um, mincing machine and make it come out the shape we want it to come out. Now, in my opinion, that is not a, a doctrine of biblical authority. Um, that's a doctrine of our authority over the Bible. Um, and um, if we really want to take seriously that the Bible is something God has given us for our um, inspiration and learning, then we need to learn better ways of actually submitting ourselves to the Bible. And um, and time is one of those ways. Um, I think we're always trying to make the Bible give us a, a quick answer, the straight answer that we can then hit other people with, um, as opposed to being prepared to take maybe a lifetime to sit and read and hear and listen to other people's reading and hearing of the Bible and and, and actually be changed by it. Mm. Yeah, to read our Bibles and to be read by them. Mm. Yeah, the awkwardness and unruliness of Scripture and the way it seems to endlessly pre- prevent us from settling what we want to be settled, but instead uh, having this awkward feature. I 
have been influenced by um, one theologian's understanding of the place of Scripture within the life of the church and how it functions. And if we imagine um, the earliest days of the church, if we take as an assumption that what we're wanting to do is discover the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. If God has spoken one word to us and it is Jesus, then we want to know who he is and what he said. Now, if we were in the earliest centuries of the life of the church, the first few minutes after Pentecost or the first few years, if we wanted to know about Jesus, we could go to someone and say, St. John, what happened around the table? Or um, Peter, what happened by the lake? Or what happened here? What happened there? And we would go to an eyewitness. Now, over time, and not that long a span of time, the eyewitnesses died. So you can no longer go there. Now, at this stage, um, a problem emerges. And we can imagine what the problem is if we think of that, that parlour game. We used to call it Chinese whispers. I don't know what oh. it's called now, but when you whisper something in one end of the room and it's whispered around, and by the time it gets to the final person, the meaning's changed. And so the question for the church was, how do we ensure that what's being, what's travelling through time, what we're now hearing, is a faithful witness to Jesus? Hmm. And therefore it's at that stage that you begin to get the canon of Scripture developed, where we're saying these books are in, they're faithful witnesses, these letters not those Gospels, not those letters, not this thing, not that thing, these. They're faithfully witnessed to Jesus. But immediately accompanying the Scripture are rules of reading. The creeds begin to emerge that say, if you read these books patiently and for long enough, and you're agitated and freed by the Spirit, you'll end up confessing this faith. We believe in the one God, Father Almighty, and on and on. So you have creeds and canon, and then you have the third sort of prong, as it were, which is the bishops, the episcopate, a teaching office um, who, again, tell us what the right faithful reading of Scripture in accordance with the creeds, which is faithful to Jesus is. And that, that sort of threefold um, motor is, of course, um, agitated and stirred up and freed and perfected by the Spirit. And so we have to be confident that despite the awkwardness of Scripture and the difficulty of, of all these questions, that God is faithful to his church mm. and that the overarching witness of the church mm. is faithful mm. to our head, our Lord, Jesus Christ. So it's a good Reformation theologian, Graham. Yeah. What do you want to, where do you want to take that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's, it's a very interesting question because I think um, the Bible... It's just a bit... The, the, context in which we read the bible is quite vital and some, one of the problems i think behind this this question is that we have this 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 idea of ourselves as sort of neutral beings that it maybe is an enlightenment construct but that we are somehow neutral beings with our pure reason coming to the bible able to to um to discern what's in it as if we are you know arbiters of uh, of that but i think what the 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 greatest theologians have always said is that actually Christ, the Christian reading of the scripture is that it's, it's a spiritual activity, not just a rational activity. It's an affective thing. Or actually the state of mind and heart of the reader matters. Um, if you come to the Bible with, I think it's your point, Jane, if you come to the Bible with all kinds of desires to make it fit your own understanding of the world or to make it, you know, I, I could have tried and find something in there that I really want to find in there because it fits my understanding. I can find it. 
because it's my twisted heart that wants to, to, to twist the scriptures to make it mean what I want it to mean. And therefore, the only way I can properly read the Bible is, in a sense, with a, with a, with a pure heart. And so purity of heart, that idea that, that, um, uh, that we approach the Bible with a, with a love for God and a willingness to do his will, is actually crucial. You can't avoid it. And therefore, it's you know we don't come to the Bible just as neutral beings, which is why we read it within faith. We read it within the work of the Spirit within us, transforming us into the image of of, of Christ. The other context, as you say, is is the church. The church has, in a sense, the interpreter of Scripture. Which come back to your question, Jane, about how you do, um, how you how you read that as a Reformation theologian. And I suppose, I mean. I, I, Luther, when he read the Bible, of course, um, thought he saw in it something uh, quite different from what councils and popes in recent years had had, had said. Um, and uh, and I suppose what that. But I think if you know, if Luther had been the only one to say that, and if looking back on it, we'd have said, okay, who was this guy in the 16th century in Germany who came up with a rather weird kind of idea of this justification by faith alone business no one else agreed with him the rest of the church thought no no this is wrong then we probably would have just consigned him to a little bit of history and put him to one side actually the significant thing about luther's reformation it seems to me that that actually significant parts of the church sort of recognized that he he kind of had a point that there was something there in scripture that had been missed by by parts of the church and that it is possible for the church to occasionally get it wrong, not in the ultimate sense of the word. And this is why I think it's so significant in the recent years. For example, the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics have come to a common agreement on on the meaning of justification. If you like, that's almost the fruit of the Reformation, the, the, the idea that actually now there is something of a common understanding in a sense that, that yes, the Lutherans emphasize one side, the, Cat, the Roman Catholics emphasize the other. But actually, there's a lot of common ground there, which often is lost in the kind of heat of debate uh, at the time. So I, I still think you, know, you can fit Luther's Reformation into the whole idea of the church's understanding of Scripture uh, against a single individual interpreting Scripture. But what it does remind us is actually the need for some sometimes the prophetic reading of Scripture. In other mm. words, a prophet who comes and sees something in Scripture that no one else can see, but then opens the, the, the eyes of the rest of the church say, oh, yes, we have missed something here. But it does, I mean, I think we've all emphasize that, that this is a a patient process yeah. that it, and and it's and uh, and what we're reading the scriptures for is to encounter jesus mm. um it isn't to have all our questions answered primarily mm. and i oh i always find it quite helpful to remember that for most of its life um the bible has not actually been read by the majority of people, because mm. it it wasn't available to be read, um, people it wasn't printed. It, it um, written copies of it were immensely expensive. Most Christians couldn't read. Most Christians couldn't read, so that um, for for most of its life, the Bible has simply has been a book which was shared mm. in community. You'd have people who could read it to others, and and who would in, they would interpret it together. And I think, in a way, um, it, obviously, it's a wonderful gift and blessing that now each one of us can own several copies with different translations mm. of the Bible and go mm. away and compare them all and that kind of thing. But it makes us forget what it's for, which is to build the community that witnesses to Jesus. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I like the 
the image, I think to, if we understand scripture to be eccentric, so it points away from itself to Jesus Christ. If we mm. recognize that God has said one word to us, which is his yes to us in, in Jesus, and then scripture, to use those historic images, you know, Jesus is, is clothed in scripture, or, or Jesus is, mm. you know, the, the, the scripture is the spectacles through which we mm. see Jesus. Mm. And so if we're reading our Bibles with any other motive, if we're seeking to somehow extrapolate some ethic to build up some architecture in which we can inhabit a, a closed world of piety that's somehow set off and apart from, from God in Jesus Christ, then we're misusing scripture. It can be misused. It needs to be read devotionally. We trust it's inspired and we hope that our reading is inspired. But that inspiration and the work of the Spirit is always within the body of Christ. Mm. It is always done together, um, not an isolated, lonely process, although, of course, on occasion it has to be, mm. but that it is a communal task. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much to Jane and to Lincoln for a fascinating discussion. Thank you to everybody who has emailed in questions, and apologies to those who didn't get their questions asked, but you may find that your question gets asked next time round, so you'll have to tune in again for GodPod82. Uh, but until then, it's uh, goodbye from me, Graham. And from me, Jane. <laughs> and from me, Lincoln. There you are. So in case you didn't know who we all were by this stage. <laughs> so until then, it's goodbye from all of us. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time... Goodbye.